0: Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here at York Alliance, and I would love to uh, get a chance to meet with you at some point. So if we haven't met yet, I hope that we'll get to do that at some point soon. Um, We are going to continue in a very short series, literally as short as a series can be. Uh, It's a two-week series. If it's one message, it's not a series. So uh, this is a two-week series. It's called Faces, and uh, we're looking at uh, two distinct ideas. So last week, if you were with us, we looked at the idea of what it means for us to be facing Jesus, that there's a a call for us to be turned towards him wherever we are, whether we're close to him physically or far from him, whether our lives are aligned closely with him or whether we're far, far away from him that we would turn towards him. That's the heart that Jesus is looking for as our response towards him, of turning towards him. So we looked at that idea of turning towards Jesus. This week, I wanna look at the flip side of that, what it means that God is turned towards us. And so that's going to be the heart of what we're going to dive into today. So if you have a Bible, let me ask you to grab it and open to Numbers chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You're welcome to to follow along there. And if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, a physical copy, you're welcome to take that one home with you. We really want everybody to have a copy of the Word. And if you didn't as you walked in, we would love for you to take that with you as you leave uh, to be able to have a copy of the Word. Numbers is near the beginning of the Bible. So uh, if you're not sure where that is, start at the beginning, start to flip forward and uh, you'll find it. It's right in the middle of the narrative where the people of God are coming from uh, slavery in Egypt into the promised land that God was delivering them into. And we're going to look at a very specific section. It's one of the most famous Benedictions. Uh, that just simply that word simply means good word. Benediction means good word. It's a blessing that uh, you've probably heard over and over and over again. Um, if you come to York Alliance on a regular basis, you hear me probably once a month or so speak this blessing over you. But I, for one, had never heard anybody teach on this, and so that's what we're going to dive into today: what this blessing really means, what it what it says to us. So in order to get there, um, I'm going to ask you to uh, close your eyes, and we're going to do an imagination exercise. So let's start there. So would you, uh, now that you've found number six, just stick your finger in there, um, close the Bible, and just uh, um, close your eyes and imagine with me. So what I want you to imagine is this. Imagine you have gone somewhere, and uh, it's, it's a massive crowd of people. There's all kinds of people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people all over the place, and you don't know anyone there. You're excited because there's something exciting that you're going to, but you're also very alone. And so there's this sense of this mass of people, and, and you're kind of isolated, lonely in the midst of the crowd, but there's this excitement in you. There's a sense of something going on. So I want you to imagine what that feels like. Picture that crowd in your head. There's hundreds and hundreds of people that you're looking and seeing. As your eyes scan through the crowd, your eyes catch the face of someone that you recognize, a friend of yours that shouldn't be there. You had no idea they were going to be here, but you see them across the crowd. So as, you, as your eyes scan, you like go past them and you come back and their eyes do the same thing, and your eyes meet, and there's this moment of recognition where they, they're so excited to see you, and you're so excited to see them, and there's this moment where their face lights up and your face lights up all the way across the crowd. When you see that, how do you feel? All right, you can open your eyes. I want you to think about what the emotion was when in your imagination you caught the eye of that person. For most of us, there's this sense of warmth and um, uh, this, this kind of like catching of our heartbeat where we're, we're excited in a way that is um, almost out of sync with how significant that is. It's like there's something in our soul that resonates with that person when there's that that look of recognition, when we see them in the midst of a crowd, there's something that happens in us. Why is that? I believe there's an answer to that question, and that's what I want us to dig into this morning. What happens when we catch the eye of someone like that? Why does it do so much in us? So to get there, I want you to listen to this blessing that you've probably heard maybe for many of you, dozens to hundreds of times. I want to ask you to listen to it two more times. Ethan is going to come and he's going to read it for us in two different translations. And I want you to listen to this blessing of the face of God turned towards you. So again, this is Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. I'm going to first read from the Good News translation and then from the ESV. May the Lord bless you and take care of you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. And then the ESV. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you short. Um, he had to read it in two translations because he's like, I got up so early, I should be able to read it in at least a little bit, take a little bit of time. Thank you, Ethan. What's this blessing mean? What's the heart of it? And why does it tie to that idea of us seeing someone's face across a crowd? I want to look first at the blessing itself. I want to look at um, what God is doing as he's moving towards us, what he does, and what that produces. Uh, So there's something that's happening because he looks at us that way. So uh, what he does, what it produces, and then ultimately why it matters. What's the significance of the face of God being turned towards us? So what he does, what it produces, and why it matters. So again, this is a famous benediction, uh, one that you've probably heard a lot. I I want us to take it apart in uh, the three different lines that are there. Each line has the same three parts. So if you uh, study this, you're going to find three distinct parts of each line. The name of God stated three times. So he's not using pronouns. He's not coming back and referencing. He's stating his name, Yahweh, to us as uh, as our God. He's stating it to his people, stating his name. Then he's stating his action, what he's doing as he moves towards us, what his position towards us is. And then there's a response that happens because of that action. Okay, so we're going to look at that in three, uh, three verses. So if you start in verse 20, uh, 24, it says, the Lord, so that's the name of the Lord, bless you, that's his action, is, he's, is blessing us, he's moving towards us with blessing, and keep you. That word, depending on your translation, might be uh, keep or guard or protect. So uh, what that first line is saying is that the position of God towards us is a position of blessing, one of love towards us, one of favor towards us. And because he has favor towards us, he also guards and protects us. There's a a, a sense of uh, his uh, kind of protection, his surrounding us because of that. So that's the way that that proceed. So we're going to go to line two and you're going to see that pattern kind of emerge and line two is where it gets really interesting. So it says this, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So now the Lord, again, same statement of of the name of the Lord, but the action is that his face is shining upon us. There's a turning of the face of God towards us, and there's a a, a light, a, a reflection of glory that comes towards us, and the response that happens because his face is turned towards us, the response that happens is grace. He is gracious to us. Grace is because of the love that God has for us. There's this Love that overflows to us. And, and so for many of us, when we think about the face of God turned towards us, uh, we, we think of shrinking back. We think of, uh, of fear. But what, what God says about himself over and over again, but here very explicitly, is when he turns towards us, he turns towards us with love and grace. One of the fascinating things about the teachings of Jesus is that Jesus often taught uh, according to reality. He didn't, he didn't give us commands. He would just say, this is the way the world works. This is what's true. This is the way it is. So he would say, um, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny, deny himself daily, take up his cross in order to follow me. Now, Jesus is not saying, um, now look, if you want to follow me, here are the rules. Here's the things you have to do. What he's saying is that the only pathway to following me is to deny yourself daily Take up your cross and follow me. That's the only way to do it. It's like if I come to you and I say, um, if you want to be healthy, you have to eat something other than candy and ice cream. I'm saying that not because I'm mad at you or not because I don't like ice cream. I think I should be able to eat ice cream all the time. But the way reality works is if I eat ice cream all the time, I won't be healthy. If you eat candy and ice cream all the time, you won't be healthy. It's just a statement of fact. So I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm punishing you or I'm calling you to something. I'm just stating a fact. If you want to be healthy, you have to eat other than something other than candy and ice cream. Well, Jesus, near the end of his life, says this to his disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we hear that, and we immediately turn it around. In order to show that I love him, I'm supposed to do something. There's something I'm supposed to do. But that's not what Jesus said. The statement of reality, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a guy named Michael Hendricks who has uh, started to enter into this new field called neurotheology, and it's basically kind of the intersection of neuroscience and theology together. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through the day today. But in his book, The Other Half of the Church, this is what Hendricks says, love is the first step. We love Jesus and we will obey. When we do not love Jesus, we will not obey him. We often conclude that we need to choose to obey, and this will prove we love him. This is exactly backwards. If I want to obey Jesus, I need to focus on skills that help me love him and receive his love. My behavior will then take care of itself. Our brains are designed to change us through love. I want to look at that last sentence one more time. Our brains are designed to change us through love. That may or may not be a new concept to you, but in neuroscience and psychology, that's something that's been known for a long, long time. It's a generally accepted fact that love is actually what changes us. That when we uh, change our deepest desires, that's when our behaviors change. So when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments... What he's saying is something happens in you when love is your position towards me. So now go back to that statement. God's face is turned towards us. His face shines on us and is gracious to us. He loves us. We love, the scriptures tell us, because he first loved us. His love towards us invites a response of love towards him. And all of that, hear me, all of that happens before our obedience. Obedience comes, but obedience is after the love that we have for God and he has for us. His face shines upon us and is gracious to us. Let's go to the, we'll come back to that, but let's go to the last line. Verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That word countenance moves us from the face of God to the eyes of God. Michael Hendricks, again, says that joy is transmitted always through the face, but especially through the eyes. When you think about seeing that person from across the room, that recognition that they have of you, it's not because their face changes first, but it's in their eyes, right? Like you can see when somebody recognizes you, you can see it in their eyes. When someone's glad to see you, You see their eyes light up. What the scripture blessing says is that when God the Father turns his face to you, his eyes meet with you, his countenance, and his eyes light up. And he brings you peace. For a lot of us, when we think about being under the gaze of God, the very last thing we think about is peace. But what, what God tells us is that when his face is to us, he brings grace. And when his eyes look at us and meet with ours, he brings us peace. So what's that do? What, what, what happens when that whole process unfolds and the face of God is turned towards us? Well, the face of God is actually a concept throughout Scripture. That Hebrew concept is more than a 1,000 times in the Scriptures, over a 100 times just in the Psalms themselves. And so what I thought we'd do is walk through all 100 times in the Psalms. <laughs> just kidding. That'd be an awesome morning, though, wouldn't it? It'd be lots of fun. No, I'm just going to show you a couple examples of the more than a 100 times that the Hebrew concept of face is in the Psalms. Because sometimes the word face shows up, and that concept shows up in English, but sometimes that's hidden to us in our translations, but the same Hebrew concept is there. So let me show you a couple of each of those. So let's start with Psalm 11. I'm gonna show it to you on the screen so you don't have to flip there. Psalm 11:7 says this, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. And so what he says is, um, in this cycle where obedience comes out of love, love creates obedience, the righteous person, those who are uh, being changed through love are seeing the face of God. Okay, so let's go one more to uh, Psalm 13. Psalm 13:1 says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So this is the opposite side. The psalmist is lamenting and saying, where is your face? I long to have your face reflecting on me. God, show me your face. So there's this crying out of the psalmist. But there are times that it's hidden. So let me show you Psalm 16. Psalm 16, says this. You make known to me the path of life in your presence is in your your translation, there is the fullness of joy. But that word presence is literally the face of God. So so what the psalmist is saying is, you make known to me the path of life in your face, or as your face is on me, there is fullness of joy. So joy comes because your face is turned toward me. Uh, one more Psalm 21. For you make him most blessed forever, you make him glad with the joy of your Again, English translation would say presence, but that's literally the Hebrew idea of face. So you, you make me glad with the joy of your face turned towards me. Here's what I want you to see. If you were to go through all 100 plus references to the face of God in the Psalms, you would find that joy always comes with the face of God. That when God's face is turned towards us, joy is the result. Why? Well, because Numbers chapter 6 tells us when he turns his face towards us, he's gracious to us. When his eyes meet with us, he gives us peace and grace and joy and peace always travel together. So as we receive grace and peace, we have joy. Now, I'm just going to ask you to stick with me for three to five minutes. I'm going to work through a little bit of neuroscience that's probably going to be Deathly boring to some of you, but it's only three to five minutes. So stick with me, and we'll come back out of it here in just a minute, okay? Um, This is fascinating stuff for at least two or three of us. Okay. Um, So neurologists tell us that there are two factors that are always present when the brain lights up with joy. There's two things. There's a lot of things that could be there, but there's two things that are consistently there. One of them is that joy is always relational, so joy is always in relationship with someone. And secondly, that joy comes when someone is happy to see me or happy to be with me. So joy comes with two factors, in relationship, and that person I'm in relationship with is happy to see me. Also, neurologists say that joy is not a typical emotion. It's what they call a supra-emotion. It is a, an emotion that is uh, in in conjunction with a lot of other emotions. So it works in concert with and supporting, tying together all kinds of other emotions. So joy is not an emotion that you have to experience in a singular form. In fact, most of the time, joy is felt in concert with other emotions. So those two things are really important for us to get together because um, the the idea of a relational God in relationship with us who is happy to see us, who is joyful in our interaction is what lights us up on the inside, which is lights up our brain, gives us a, a, a different way of looking at the world. So Ed Corey wrote a book called uh, Becoming a Face of Grace, and he says uh, this, dopamine-fueled interactions powered by grace are the basis for bonding with God and with others. The strongest bonds we share are those rooted firmly in repeated grace-filled dopamine-triggering interactions. Grace, fueled by dopamine, is the basis for the strongest relational bonds possible. Let me repeat that middle section. The strongest bonds we share are those rooted firmly in repeated, grace-filled, dopamine-triggering interactions. When we engage the face of God, there's something that happens inside of us, and when that happens again and again and again, there's this strong bond that is created. Now, some of you are saying, okay, enough with the neuroscience mumbo-jumbo, let's get back to the Bible. But uh, let let me simply say this, God created your dopamine on purpose. Like the way that we're wired, the way that he's put our brains together is uh, that we would respond when we receive his face towards us. In fact, neurologists would call that a dopamine-fueled interaction. We would call that discipleship. See? As we look at the face of God, there's something that happens in our brain, and we would say that the love that we have for God gets expressed in obedience to him. And they would say, there's dopamine being released in your brain because God made it that way. So now, with that in mind, there's this repeated exposure to the face of God that creates what psychologists call attachment. And so what we are called to do is be attached to the God of the universe. Numbers chapter 6 says... God comes to us, turns his face towards us, shining upon us, his countenance is raised to us to give us grace and peace so we would attach to him, so we would be connected to him at a deep, bonded level, which answers the question why God's face towards us is significant, but why is the face across the crowd significant? So in that imagination exercise that we began with, if I see that person all the way across the crowd, why does it matter? What's the very first thing we find out about humans if we read the scriptures beginning to end? The very first thing you hear in Genesis chapter one is in the image of God, he created them. You and I bear the face of God. And so when we interact with one another and our face lights up, it's a secondary response to the fact that God's face lights up because we bear the face of God. You bear the face of God to the people around you, whether you want to or not, whether you intend to or not. That's not the point. God has given you his face, his likeness. And so when I look at you and you look at me and there's this, uh, th- there's this recognition, there's this joy in my face, I'm glad to be with you that idea of me being glad to be with you and you being glad to be with me, that, that lights up something in us that's hardwired into us because God has desired to attach to us. Which is why it's so important for us to be in a healthy, loving community with one another because we need that physical face to light up in front of us. The face of God, you can close your eyes and imagine. And the Bible tells us very clearly that his face is turned towards you. And grace and in peace. But that's shown to us when we interact with one another. All right. Why does that matter? What, 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 what? That, that's, that's great. That's a fascinating neurology, at least to a couple of us. And it's an interesting theology. Why does it make a difference? Well, we could take months to walk through all of the implications. I just want to give you three of them this morning that I think are significant for us first one is this. Joy always creates authenticity. Joy creates authenticity. It makes us real with one another. I'm going to give you a longer quote. Stick with me. I think there's a payoff at the end that makes it worth it. This is a guy named Dr. Jim Wilder who was kind of the uh, front end of the neurotheology movement. Uh, He has some really fascinating stuff. Uh, let, Let me just walk through this quote with you. He says this, When we are the sparkle in someone's eyes... Their face lights up with a smile when they see us. We feel joy. From the moment we're born, joy shapes the chemistry, structure, and growth of our brain. Joy lays the foundation for how well we will handle relationships, emotions, pain, and pleasure throughout our lifetime. Joy creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. Joy gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and others. Expressing our joyful identity creates space for others to belong. Joy gives us the freedom to live without masks because in spite of our weaknesses, we know we are loved. We are not afraid of our vulnerabilities or exposure. Joy gives us the freedom from fear to live from the heart Jesus gave us. We discover increasing delight in becoming the people God knew we could be. What Wilder is saying is this. When we have connection with one another, it always creates authenticity because it's in the reality of our connections, me being honest with you and you being honest with me, that joy is created. So authentic relationships build joy, and joy builds authentic relationships. There's a cycle. And if we're real with one another, we will always be building joy, and if we're not, we will be deflating joy. Let me explain. Remember, joy has two components, relational, and I'm happy to see you, you're happy to see me. So that relational component could be present, but if you're pretending to be someone that you're not, and I'm expressing how happy I am to see you, your brain is smart, my brain's smart, we know, that you're happy to see somebody who doesn't actually exist. And so although you may be happy to see the me that I'm presenting to you, I believe you wouldn't be happy to see the real me. And so what happens is our joy starts to deflate because we're not able to be real with one another. But on the flip side, an authentic community where people are real with one another and we are our real selves before one another Always builds joy. What happens is there's a, 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 a lighting up of our face with one another that's authentic and real. And when I see your face light up, I know you know who I am, and you still want to be with me. I know that you 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 still desire that connection, even though you know my stuff, even though you know that I'm broken and messed up. It's okay. Joy always creates authenticity. Secondly, lack of joy always creates problems. Here's what I mean. Joy is relational. So if in relationship, joy is not happening because I'm either irrelational or because I'm faking it in relationship, I have a mask on, I'm being hypocritical, and joy is dropping out, when I'm low in joy, I counterintuitively do not naturally move toward relationship, I move away from relationship. This doesn't make any sense logically, but it does within your experience. Because you and I both know that when our joy is low, the last thing we want to do is be closer in relationship with somebody else or closer in relationship with God. We, we retreat. We, we go to non-relational joy substitutes, pseudo-joys. And those pseudo-joys don't build our joy, they drain our joy. So sometimes those are very natural things, um, things like social media or food or uh, TV or movies or whatever it is. Sometimes those are much more harmful things, things like alcohol or drugs or sugar or porn or whatever it is. That there's, there's these non-relational ways that we seek joy. The way Hendricks says it is that the soil of our hearts, when it lacks joy, is ripe for addiction that we're drawn to a pseudo-joy because we're lacking real joy. Here's the good news. Real relational joy, both vertical and horizontal, horizontal, vertical, you know what I meant, (laughs) with others and with God, real joy actually drains the power of pseudo-joys. So... uh, If you find yourself in a cycle of addiction towards a pseudo-joy, something that is a a, a false joy that you're seeking to fill your life with, depending on how far down the line you are, there's maybe a a variety of things that need to happen. But one of the things that must happen is that real joy has to be created. And what you'll find is that when real joy is there, instead of the fake joy that's replacing the real joy, all of a sudden the, the drive toward the fake joy starts to go down because you have the real thing. This happens throughout our life. When we substitute something good with something not as good, when we go back to the really good thing, we don't want the substitute anymore. So when joy is lacking, it creates problems. But when we fill joy, when joy starts to come up, our drive towards pseudo-joy starts to disappear. So joy creates authenticity, low joy creates problems, And then finally, and importantly for where we're headed over the next month and a half or so, is that joy, believe it or not, helps us handle suffering. Now that's weird. Like, how is it that joy helps us to handle suffering? Remember I said joy is a supra-emotion not a a singular emotion. It can be held in contact with other things. So Jesus is our clear model here. In uh, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. So with joy, Jesus engaged the most difficult, awful kind of suffering that anyone could imagine bearing all of our sin and shame, being disconnected from all of his earthly relationships, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. And just a few verses before that, the writer of the Hebrews says, if you're going through suffering, you should look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. In the same way that Jesus endured suffering with joy, we are to also endure suffering with joy. Uh, Another quote from Michael Hendricks. He says this Joy helps us regulate our emotions and endure suffering. Joy does not remove our pain, but it gives us the strength to endure. Joy does not remove our pain, but it gives us the strength to endure. It's vitally important to get because this is not a matter of saying things are all good, everything's fine. It's a matter of saying that um, even though there are a lot of negative emotions, Joy helps us regulate them. Let me give you an example. If you go into work tomorrow and you find out that you just got fired, your first response is not going to be joy, right? Like that's not going to be like, like your immediate emotion is not like, yeah, well, maybe if your job's really bad, I guess, but that's, it's not going to be your immediate re- emotion, right? You're going to have anger, you're going to have fear, you're going to have sadness, you're going to have a lot of other stuff. Joy's not going to be the first thing that happens. You're going to have all this, this blend of emotions, But as you pack up all your stuff and you're walking out to your car, if you have the sense as you're walking out to your car that the face of God is turned towards you. And even though you're feeling fear and sadness and anger and all these other things, you also know that the face of God is protecting you, that he blesses you and keeps you, that his face is shining on you and giving you grace, and that his eyes are connecting with yours and giving you peace. You have joy while you still have fear and sadness and anger. Both of those things are happening together. And the joy helps you regulate the fact that you have all those other emotions. So all of those emotions are kind of held together by joy, which is why it's so vitally important for us to be real with one another. It's easy to be authentic when things are going well. But when we're really struggling, that's when it's hard to be authentic. And that's when we must be authentic because that's when we need joy the most. So what happens if I come into a relationship with you and I pretend like I'm good even when I'm not? So I, just, I, I believe that the Christian response to my suffering is, Oh, I'm good. Jesus is good all the time. I never have to worry about suffering. I'm in good shape because I know I got eternity with him. Everything's fine. Now, I've just denied this whole set of emotions that's in me are real emotions, and I've pretended to be someone that I'm not, and so your response to me, whatever it is, cannot bring me joy because the person that you want to be with doesn't exist because I'm pretending. So the very time I need your joy to regulate my emotions, I don't get it because I'm pretending. Suffering gives us an opportunity to be real with one another in a way that allows us to receive true joy. We're gonna begin a series next week that will carry us through the Lenten season. It's called Encountering God in Dark Places. And we're gonna walk through some of the really difficult things in the life of Jesus and how those things transfer into the difficult things in our life. And it's not gonna be easy. And some of you know that because you're in dark places or you've been in dark places or you're headed towards dark places and you know those are hard things. But in the midst of that, as Jesus did, we must be people who recognize that the face of God has turned towards us, even when it's really hard. And we don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend like everything's great. What we need to do is be real. And as we honestly admit our suffering, our difficulty, our fear, our anger, joy can regulate those emotions, not to make it all better, but to turn us back to the face of God. And so that's where we're headed. For this morning, I want to just give you a few moments to rest in the face of God. to Just to recognize what number six tells us is actually true. And so I'm going to ask you to move your stuff if you're taking notes or if you have a Bible open or whatever, just kind of move that over to the side and I'm going to ask you to do uh, one more imagination exercise with me. So would you... Clear your stuff and close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, I want you to imagine again a crowded space that you're in. I want you to imagine a bunch of people. But this time, where you're going is um, something that you're a little nervous about. Something that um, you're, you're dreading. You know you have to do, but you're you're not really excited about it. And you see hundreds, maybe thousands of people, and you don't know them, and you feel alone. And concerned. You feel that dread. Feel both of those things. Just imagine what that would feel like. And as you have that sense of uh, negative anticipation, that sense of dread of what's coming, sense of concern, maybe fear, you also have this sense of loneliness because all of these people, you don't know them. Nobody is uh, connecting with you. But as you look across the crowd... On the other side of the crowd, I want you to imagine whatever way this works for you, I want you to imagine the face of Jesus looking at you. And as he sees you, his eyes light up. As he sees you, there's this joy that comes across his face. He's so glad to be with you. just want to give you a few moments to sit in that to imagine all of the crowd all of the negative emotions all of the anticipation and to imagine the face of jesus looking at you and smiling so let's just take a minute holy spirit would you just bring that reality into our hearts and our minds that you are smiling at us The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord makes his face to shine upon you and is gracious to you. The Lord lift up, lifts up his countenance to you. He meets your gaze, his eyes light up, and he gives you peace. Peace. Take a deep breath and breathe in that reality. I'm going to ask you to open your eyes. There's some of you who are readily able to receive that. Whether you always feel it or not, you you know that the face of God is turned towards you and smiles, you know the joy. You've experienced that, and that's beautiful. But I think the majority of us, I wish it wasn't majority, but I think it's the majority of us, struggle with that for one of two reasons. One reason is this there's some of you who have experienced the face of God, you know that it's true. You know that at points in your life, you've experienced the goodness of God turned towards you, you've experienced the joy that he has, you've experienced that sense of his eyes lighting up, but something's happened. Maybe just life, you got busy, or maybe there's a specific sin that's become a pattern and you feel removed from him, or, or maybe... There's uh, just a a way of uh, some kind of trauma that's been in the past that you've experienced and you just, you feel apart from him. Your reaction, our reaction is, I need to fix that first and then he'll be able to look at me. Our natural default is as soon as I clear that thing out of the way, I'm going to be able to receive his love again. Uh, Let me be really, really clear. He, He will ultimately want to clear that thing out of the way, absolutely. But that's not first. First is his face is turned towards you. First is his eyes meet you, and in the midst of the brokenness, and in the midst of the distance, and in the midst of all of the the fear and frustration and anger and distance that you feel in the midst of all of that, he loves you right where you are, and ultimately he'll deal with that thing. But first, he wants to love you, and he wants you to receive that love. So that's a lot of us. I think there's one more group that I think is really important for us to speak to and that is there's some of you who are hearing this and you know that it's in the Bible. You saw me read it. You've heard all that I said and you understand neuroscience and you understand all of the stuff and you're also saying, I don't buy it. Like I've been around and I've interacted with this God you're talking about before and he's not like that. He's demanding and He's calling me to do things that I can't do and I will never measure up and so therefore I'm coming on Sunday morning and I'm doing the stuff I'm supposed to do but I never anticipate to have that kind of a relationship with Him. And if that's where you are, there's a couple things I want to say. First one is this. On behalf of a bunch of churches that I have nothing to do with and that may not even exist anymore, I want to apologize to you for the fact that we have often, often misrepresented God. The Bible is exceedingly clear in telling us that the position of God towards those who are looking to him is one of love and grace and peace. And so I'm sorry that what you have heard is that he does not love you, or that his love is conditional based on your response. That's not true. But here's the other thing I want to tell you. Right where you are, there's an invitation in. The Psalms, in addition to over a hundred times talking about the face of God, will also say this, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a step forward that we have the privilege of taking that allows us to taste and see. And for you, that may not be able to first be the face of God because that may be too hard for you to get your head around. There may be too much baggage. There may be too much stuff. I get it. But it can be a community of faith that says, let us represent the face of God to you. Let us love you in a way where our eyes can light up and our face can be turned shining toward you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So wherever you are, there's an invitation in. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond in just a minute, the team's gonna lead us and we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing and that's a beautiful response to his goodness. For some of you, there's an invitation to step forward You need someone to represent the face of God before. You need someone to come beside you and to be able to pray over you in that way that says, I'm with you. I'm glad to see you. My eyes can light up as I get to pray for you. We would love to do that. This side of the sanctuary is set up that way. So whether this altar rail or this front pew, it's an opportunity for you to come and be. And we would love to have pastors and leaders and intercessors and friends just be able to gather around you and represent God to you to pray God's blessing over you. Maybe for some of you, that you you need to first encounter him directly, and another face would complicate the issue. And so this side of the sanctuary is for that. If you want to come to this altar rail or this front pew, this is a place for you just to be with God. And you may say, well, why would I need to move from where I am to go be with God? I can be with God right where I am. And that's true. But if you've ever moved forward to an altar, you know, there's a couple things that happens physiologically within you. There's, there's some stuff, right? Your, your heart starts to beat a little bit faster and you get a little sense of like a shortness of breath in a way that's good, kind of, you know, you have that feeling. And, and there's something that's happening as we are stepping forward to encounter God in a way that's not what's going to happen when you stay at your pew. And so by stepping forward, we're just inviting him to come and to work in us in a different kind of way. And that's not going to be for everybody but there's some of you who it's, it's worth taking that step forward. And so I wanna encourage you to respond as God leads you to knowing that his face is turned towards you, his eyes are encountering yours, and his face is not judgment, and his eyes are not scrutiny. It's love and joy and peace. And so would you stand, and let's sing together as we respond.